Well, good morning, everyone. I am uh, um, excited to be here this morning and visiting with you and sharing from God's Word. I had the the privilege um, or honor just after I graduated from high school to be a part of a team of basketball players where players were taken from all different parts of the country and we came together and then we trained in Chicago for about a week at a training camp and we went off to Europe and we toured Europe playing European basketball clubs. And one of the fun things about that trip is we didn't stay in just like hotels or hostels, but we actually in many places were put into homes of people um, in the places that we traveled. And I was um, placed in a home with a family in Amsterdam and uh, it was a fun experience, but one of the things that was odd for me is like the first big meal we had together there. Um, I am an American meat eater. Um, I like my, my steak or my fried chicken or whatever, and I like it hot. Um, I like it off a grill. I like those kinds of foods. So um, Tim, the tool man, Taylor, would be proud of me. But I... Uh, one of the first big meals we had there with this gracious family that were all excited to feed me, we had this, I don't even know what it's called. It probably has some official name. In fact, I've told this story before and someone's like, I know what that's called. So if you know what that's called, tell me later. But we sit down for dinner. I'm looking at this thing that's kind of jiggling in the middle of the table. And it's some sort of like, I don't think you can eat raw pork. I mean, correct me if you can, but it feels like you shouldn't. Um, but it was... Kind of this raw porkish dish where it was shaved, like, but it was very cold and held together by this gelatinous blob of, I think it was mayo and dilled something and pickles and everything I don't like. And I sat there thinking, oh no. But one of the ways I was raised, both by my family as well as going on mission trips as a kid, was you eat whatever's in front of you because they're gracious in hosting you, so don't be a spoiled brat, eat what is provided, which has gotten me into health problems in some countries, but, and I was surprised it didn't hear, but I was gonna eat it, you have to eat it. And the wonderful thing though was, and I don't know if it's just because like, people in Holland and Belgium really love their Coca-Cola, or they thought, here come a bunch of Americans, so let's make sure we have Coca-Cola on hand, but after every bite I took of that piece of food, I swear I drank about half a gallon of Coca-Cola just to get it down. And I got it down and I didn't get sick. Here's my point. I did not want to offend my gracious hosts. I'm not even sure where their faith was. And part of this trip was put together as supposedly an all-star team. And I say that because I don't want to pat myself on the back. But it was a bunch of Christian players from across the country that toured. And at halftime of every game, we stopped elbowing and fighting with the other team to go out and sing a couple songs and share our testimonies. Then we went back to fighting on the, on the, on the court with them. So it's supposed to be a missions trip. So one of the things I didn't want to be is like this Christian in this home of this family in Amsterdam who acted like a spoiled brat instead of be gracious for what they have provided in hopes of making a relationship and being a good example to them. And I bring that up because today we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 17. You can open your Bibles there, please. And I just entitled this sermon, Taxes, but with a question mark. And I'm not sure why this is the passage I chose to preach today. I asked Matt, do you have anything you'd like me to talk about? And he says, whatever you feel that God is leading you or the Spirit's leading you to, to preach. 
And so for whatever reason, taxes um, is what came to mind. Um, And I think it's probably because I was thinking about my taxes and working on my taxes because it seems to be tax season. So I hope you're now not distracted for the rest of the sermon thinking about, oh no, I have to get that done. You still have some time to do that. But my question is, as we look at this passage, and we're actually going to bounce over to another one in Matthew and if, uh, as a part of this sermon, is are these passages we're going to look at this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 17, truly about taxes or not? The author of the book of Matthew is, well, Matthew, and his, anybody know what his uh, profession was before being called into being a disciple? He was a tax collector, so leave it to Matthew to throw a couple of illustrations in uh, his uh, gospel that talk to us, or that use taxes as an example or an illustration. But I wasn't going to try to propose to you today that this passage and the other one we're going to bounce to ever so briefly are not truly about taxes at all, although there's obviously a little lesson in there um, for uh, Jesus' followers, which is pay your taxes. But beyond that... There's, I think, a deeper meaning behind both of these passages or both of these experiences that Jesus has and what he's trying for his disciples to learn and then by extension for us to learn as well. So looking at Matthew chapter 17, I'm going to read to you verses 24 through 27. I'm going to ask you to follow along, please. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be a red one in in a chair back in front of you. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak, which, if you know Peter, is a rarity, but that's, that's how this goes. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, before I move on, I've often, I've looked at this passage before. I've taught this passage before. And when I get into the meanings of the passage, sometimes I overlook how strange it is how Peter is able to get the money to pay the tax. So let's not overlook, first of all, that this is a miracle of God that occurs for them to pay the tax. He goes out as the fisherman that he is by trait and casts a line and pulls in a fish, and in the mouth of that fish is the money he needs to pay his, the tax for the temple. So go ahead and start fishing, see what happens for you. I doubt it'll go this way, but we can't overlook the fact of God's miraculous intervention here as another example of his validation of Jesus's ministry, but not just his ministry, his identity as Messiah. Now, moving into the meaning of the passage, when we look at this, looking at the background of this passage, there is a tax that is instituted back in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 30. And if you want to leave your your finger or a bookmark in Matthew 17 and flip over to Exodus 30, I'm going to go back to that passage Um, a couple times in this sermon, the the Exodus 30 passage. But what the tax collectors in Capernaum are are doing is they are, once again, trying to find something they can hold against Jesus. So oftentimes, Jesus' teachings come when someone else is trying to stump him or trap him. 
And Matthew uses two stories of taxes to illustrate this and watches Jesus, the master teacher, turn it around on, on the person asking the question to give a lifelong um, message or lesson for all of us to glean from. But the context of the question is rooted in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. And here is how that reads. Then the Lord said to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over those 20 years old or more are to give an offering to the Lord. The rich are not to give more than a half shekel and the poor are not to give less. When you make the offering to the Lord to atone for your lives, receive the atonement money from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will be a memorial for the Israelites before the Lord, making atonement for your lives. So when we look at this tax, it was really intended to help with um, the necessary maintenance, upkeep, and uh, necessities of the temple. It was a religious tax, but in that time, especially in Moses' time, these taxes were used um, as a religious tax, but it was also nation-building. And in the time of Moses, and, and then moving forward from Moses all the way up until Saul, who really functioned as the king of Israel? God himself. He is the king. In fact, when you read uh, the book of Psalms, you will find the theme of every psalm in some way or another is that the Lord is king. So he is the king. And when Israel asks for a king um, of Samuel and by extension God, uh, because all the cool kids have one, that's essentially what they want. They look at all the nations around them and go, hey, they all have kings. We want a king too. And God says, I'm right here, but I'll give you what you want and it's not going to end well for you because here's what's going to happen with the king that you receive in Saul. But you have decided you want a human king instead of the one that is sovereign over all. So here you go. And I bring that up because in Jesus' response here, we're going to see that theology of who truly is king, man or God. But in essence, this tax is one that's given by everyone who is age 20 and over. And so the first thing we see is when Jesus and Peter specifically are asked, all the disciples are there, verse 24, all the disciples arrive in Capernaum, and the collectors of the tax came to Peter and asked, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter, being Peter, quickly assumes and says, yes, he does. Okay, it's Peter speaking quickly, and maybe he's right, or maybe he's assuming. You know, Peter's quick to always defend Jesus, right? Even to the point of pulling a sword and chopping a guy's ear off which when you look at Peter's like, personality, he wasn't aiming for the ear. Okay, that would be weird, right? I shall defend you. Got him. Okay, how did he end up cutting the ear off? He's swinging for the head, and the guy fortunately ducks and loses his ear. What does Jesus do? Tells Peter, put it away, and puts the ear back on. My point being, Peter's always really quick to respond with not thinking things through all the way, which is why I really like Peter, because he reminds me of me. Peter responds quickly. Yes, he does, and maybe Jesus has in the past, and Peter witnessed it, or he's assuming, but he's quick to defend Jesus. Then they get together, 
And notice that Jesus uses the term Simon, not Peter. Peter means the rock. Okay, so he's referring to him as the name of like the one that seems to be impulsive. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. So if God is king, Yahweh Elohim is king. Jesus, as the son in the Trinity, it would be exempt from paying the tax. We also believe, theologically, as you look forward in the New Testament, Jesus is king. And those he has brought into his fold as his children also are exempt from paying the tax. As a king's children do not have to pay the tax, so Jesus' children don't have to pay the tax. Or if you want to extend it to Yahweh being the king, Jesus is exempt, and all those he's bringing with him also do not have to pay that tax. So Jesus and his disciples are likely exempt from the temple tax, theologically speaking, and it signals that with the coming of the kingdom in Jesus, believers are no longer under the Old Testament law, but the law of Christ. See Galatians 6.2. Jesus fulfilled the law, and the law shows us our sin. But the obligation to pay a temple tax isn't necessarily required of Jesus and his disciples, but yet Jesus wants to pay it. Why? As to not give offense. There's another theological point here I want to point out real quickly as to why Jesus is exempt from the temple tax. We also look in the book of Hebrews and see from Hebrews chapters 4 through 8 that Jesus is our high priest. Guess who didn't have to pay the temple tax? The high priest. Yet Jesus, once again, he is pointing out to Peter in the remainder of this passage, starting in verse 27. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So Jesus is going to go ahead and pay the tax for all who should pay the tax. This is one of those examples, and I ask myself this question all the time. What can I do versus what should I do? We live in such an age, especially in the church, I don't know if it's new for us, I just think we have more modes and means by which to share our opinions and our thoughts. But we often are looking for what can we do or not do versus what should we do or not do. I started my, my, my professional career as a teacher, moved into youth ministry, and was a youth minister for about seven and a half years before becoming a senior pastor here in Newburgh um, for almost nine years. And one of the things that was interesting to me is how youth would often try to figure out what they can or cannot get away with or do. Loophole theology. Then I became a senior pastor. And guess what adults do? Adults do the exact same thing. Yet we always look at kids like, ah, oh, these kids are always trying to figure out what they can get away with. And then I'd have a pastor, can I talk to you for a minute? And we'd shut my door, and I'd have an adult who's trying to figure out what they can get away with. Human nature, our sinfulness, is trying to figure out where's the line, where's the law, where's the thing that we have to do versus what we should do. 
An example of that, I was talking to a police officer friend of mine one time, and he said, you know, honestly, and please don't use this to your advantage someday, the stop signs in, like, shopping parking lots, those are put there oftentimes, and maybe I'm wrong, if you're like a city planner, tell me that I'm wrong later. But the police officer told me those are put up by oftentimes the businesses. They're not really that enforceable. I was like, sweet. <laughs> you know how more, much more quicker I'm going to get through that crazy Freddy's parking lot in Newburgh? <laughs> Now, should I do that? No. Plus, watch me do that, and a police officer pulls me over. Like, well, I had a police officer from McMinnville tell me I didn't have to. Well, he was wrong. <laughs> Noted. But what should I do? Well, there's human beings walking everywhere in that parking lot. I should probably stop at every stop sign there and even go very slowly for all the children and people that run out in front of me. That's what I should do. So in this situation, in Matthew 17, 24 through 27... Jesus doesn't have to pay that temple tax. He can tell that temple tax collector, I don't have to because I'm the son of the living God, the Messiah, the high priest, so I'm exempt in about every way you can think of, so I'm not going to pay it. And neither is Peter because he is my child. I have wrapped him in as a believer in me, and so he doesn't have to pay it either. Nanny, nanny. Okay? No, he's not going to do that, though. Why? Because he doesn't want to offend he doesn't want to lay, and how this, this Greek word is actually defined is more specifically not wanting to cause a stumbling block to someone else. So not creating any way in which an accusation can be made against him, not placing a stumbling block in front of somebody else is Jesus' intent. Not just for himself, but what is he also teaching Peter? Don't let this become a stumbling block for you which Peter has to be reminded of later on by Paul when it comes to some other things that Peter allows to become a stumbling block in his life. Now, Jesus is willing to not offend on a non-gospel or scriptural issue. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this passage, says this, We do not have to approve of all the laws of the country in which we live to obey them. We do not have to approve of everything our local church or denomination does to support it. There may be things our neighbors do, of which we strongly disapprove, but we should often overlook such things in order to not set up an unnecessary barrier to their hearing and responding to the gospel. So there's two different situations here. One is how do we interact with non-believers? I say frequently we should not expect believers to act like believers. But yet as believers we often do. But there's a lot of things with unbelievers that I can overlook because I don't expect them to try and live like a believer is living or should be living because they don't have the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin. They don't have the Holy Spirit guiding them in the wisdom of Scripture. So my first duty to them is not to sit there and tell them everything they're doing that's wrong, but to see how I can be Jesus to them. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree. Now, don't hear as I speak about these things. Please hear me. Clearly, I am not advocating that we just suddenly compromise the clear black and white scripture that teaches us certain issues and certain things. What I'm saying, though, is oftentimes as believers, we take things that aren't explicit in scripture and read them into scripture and make those doctrine when it's actually not there. Or we expect a non-believer to behave in a way we would expect a believer to act, and then we disassociate with them. In which case, how do we bring Jesus to the lost? if we're not willing to overlook some things for the sake of the gospel. Then the second part of this is, when do we unnecessarily divide 
within the church body on non-scriptural issues. John Riley, who was the uh, um, Archbishop, or so he was the Bishop of Liverpool, 1816 to 1900, as a part of the Church of England, he said this, and I give you those years because I think the church kind of dividing and splitting and arguing over non-doctrinal issues is not a new thing. So if he's writing about this at the end of the 1800s, it's applicable to us today, as you well know, when we have all the media forums to tell us why we should be fighting with one another. He says this, There are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements which they may not thoroughly approve rather than to give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. God's rights undoubtedly we ought never to give up, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound fine and seem very heroic to always be standing out tenaciously for our rights, but it may well be doubted with such a passage as this whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. How we communicate and demonstrate truth matters. The words matter too. I hold dear and true that this word of God is truth and that it means what it says. And I do not get the convenience to reinterpret things that are very clear in Scripture. So just so you know where I stand on that. My approach in communicating this and letting people know what this is also matters. And it also matters that I decide to not die on a hill for something that's not in this. Because I feel like it should be in this, but it's not. But I'm sure it's what God wants, so I'm going to fight someone on that when it's not clear here. Those are those things that Boyce and Riley are telling us should probably just stay over there and not be brought into this conversation. There are things, obviously, we break fellowship over that we should. There's obvious things in which you break relationships with people on, and you should. But I think that list is shorter than sometimes we think it is. Galatians um, chapter 5 tells us that to be careful. I'll just read it. I was going to try to quote it, but I'm going to mess it up. I'm just going to read it to you. Um, Galatians chapter 5, and you can turn there if you want or not, but I keep remembering this anytime I feel like I'm getting tense or in tension with someone within the church. And this comes just before the fruit of the Spirit, which I don't think is a coincidence. And it's just before the acts of the flesh, which I don't think is a coincidence either. And Paul's advice to the church in Galatia is this in chapter 5, verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. I, as a former pastor, now Christian school administrator and teacher, am not overly concerned about the raging atheist and their hatred for the church. I don't think that they're going to destroy a church. I just don't. I mean, the church has been existing since Jesus, and I don't think some villain with a microphone is going to make us suddenly go, oh, no, um, they don't like us, and we're no longer going to be around. No. What I think is a threat to churches everywhere is ourselves and how we go about dealing with our conflicts. And that, essentially, through, and I don't want to bring up what nobody wants to talk about anymore, and I don't want to talk about it anymore, okay, but 2020... (laughs) Okay, as we traversed 
things like COVID and, and elections and things like that. There is no way around the simple facts in America that more churches are closing their doors than new churches are starting. Church attendance has dropped dramatically. And a lot of pastors, like me included, have decided to find other vocations. And so we have to sit back and ask ourselves, was that the government that did that to us? Is that an agenda by some group out there that did that to us? Or did we devour ourselves in that time? The good news is it's not completely devoured. I mean, there's still very healthy, very strong, wonderful churches. I count this one as one of those. It's why my family is here. But we need to be very careful what we decide we want to divide on in the Christian community. Because unfortunately, we see real-life examples of that in the last three years of dogma that isn't in Scripture becoming a central point to some churches. And that has had deadly effects. A very wise person one time with a lot more experience in ministry once told me as a pastor, they said, uh, I think some of you in this room might have been in the same meeting that they're talking about because it's a CB pastor from Oregon, said if you, if, you unite, or you, if you unite around the gospel, you'll be a healthy church that will grow. If you unite around anything else, you will not be. So, the gospel as given to us in Scripture is what we, we unite around, not other things that are our pet. It doesn't mean you can't care about those things, by the way. You can absolutely care about those things. They just can't be the center of the church, right? Now, with that in mind, I want you to flip to Matthew's other tax passage really quickly. I'm not going to spend as much time talking about this one, even though it is the longer one, but I don't want you to... Uh, feel like I trapped you here all, all morning long. But I want you to look at Matthew 22, please. It's another tax question. And this is one intended to trap Jesus. If he says to the person that asks them this question that, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, well, guess who's going to be upset with him? Well, Caesar, or at least the Roman officials will be, and they'll, they'll come looking for him. Yet he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. Well, guess who's upset with that? The Hebrew people there living in, in Israel are going to be upset with that idea because we hate these taxes. We shouldn't have to pay these taxes. These taxes are unfair. We want to be our own kingdom, and that Messiah would throw off Rome. And so there's no way the Messiah would tell us to pay taxes to Rome. So no matter how Jesus answers this, it's a, it's a lose-lose for him unless he's Jesus and just knows how to tie the people that are asking questions and knots with his responses, which is what he does here. A profound passage that for many years I've missed the meaning of. So I'm going to read verses 15 through 22 to you. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? <laughs> but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. 
Why was this response so flabbergasting to those that asked the questions? Well, they would be experts in the law. They would know the first five books of the Bible very, very well. So Jesus takes that coin and says, whose image is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. I mean, everybody knows that. Okay, so give back to Caesar what you're supposed to give to Caesar's. To Caesar. But give to God what is God's. Now, how do you answer that? Because what is God's then? Well, that's 10% of all of your income. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. If you look at the Old Testament, upon whose image is God stamped? You're everything, you and me. You are made in the image of God. How awesome and amazing is that? Or as I used to say all the time, how cool is that? Some people in my last church made me a shirt that said, how cool is that? Because I guess I said it so many times from the pulpit. Except they messed up the punctuation. They put an exclamation mark instead of a question mark. So people point that out when I wear it, but whatever. It's because I was always yelling it. But how cool is that? You have been made in the image of God himself. And what that means, when Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, they were given dominion over his creation to be his ambassadors, his emissaries, the ones that represented him to the rest of creation, to rule and take care of his kingdom. And we didn't do a good job of that, right? Right from the get-go. Sorry, moving on too much. So what's Jesus saying to those he's talking to here? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes. But your everything, give back to God. That's how you talk, how you interact with people, how you do business, how you love one another, how you handle difficulties, how you handle stress, how you handle failure when you're angry, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're married, when you're single, when you're young, when you're old. All of that is God's. So you are living in every facet of your life for his glory. So in both of these instances or these examples, what we have is Taxes are the illustration for a much bigger and deeper thing in every one of our lives, which is living for his glory and being Christ to others in avoiding offense when you don't have to. The gospel will offend on its own. Okay, We're not going to get through our days and our weeks without offending somebody on accident because of what we believe. Some people, I remember being in Los Angeles, California one time with a group of uh, young people as a youth pastor, we're walking down the street, all in our matching t-shirts, which always helps make you stick out like a sore thumb. As so we're all walking through Los Angeles and this person on the other side of the street just stops and says, hey, Christians! And I will not repeat what they said next, but it included a hand signal. And then said, get out of here, LA doesn't need you around here. And the kids were all like, what do we do? We're just walking down the street. I said, Jesus says that if they hated me, they're gonna hate you. So just by walking down the street with our Christian t-shirts on, some of you decided to make a public spectacle out of who we were. I said, guys, we don't keep on moving. It's okay. Don't take it personal. Count it all joy that you're associated with the Savior. Now, make sure we act like that, okay? <laughs> like a Christian t-shirt, oh yeah, let's go. No, that wouldn't help. Okay? But we're going to offend, but we don't go out of our way to do that. There's one little parenthetical point I want to make as I get ready to wrap up here. One of the interesting things about this passage back in Matthew chapter 17 now that I want to point out to you, we were in 24 through 27. All the disciples are there. 
Yet who is the tax paid for, it appears? Now, I'm getting into gray area here, just so you know, okay? But it looks like Jesus says to Peter, take the money and we're going to pay the tax for you and I. When we look back at Exodus 30, that tax is meant to be paid for those who are ages 20 and up. So I hypothesize or theorize or uh, propose to you the potential. And again, if somebody were to tie me to a stake, ready to light me on fire and say, we can't, I'd be like, we can't, because this might not be true. Okay, this is up for gray area debate. But I think it's important to point out for all of you young people in the room. So if you're like younger in the room, and I'm not going to define what young is because some of you will then be offended. Um, but <laughs> I don't want to give uncaused offense. I'm just kidding. I'm, I keep telling my students I'm old and I'm in my late... Mid, mid, not yet. Next year, I'm late 40s. And I'm still mid 40s. No, I just offended some who were like, well, I'm 50. I'm not old. I digress. i sorry. I'll go back. But for those of you who are young in the room who might have been zoning out up until this point, not that you'd ever do that, but if you were somehow daydreaming, come back with me now. Okay? I think there's a really good chance that other than Peter, most of those disciples were under the age of 20. So Jesus was like the first youth pastor with one leader named Peter and one rebellious kid named Judas. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, that's, I stole that joke from another leader. But here's why I think that. First of all, because of this passage and the equation back and forth of that. Secondly, um, I think the message I'm trying to get here is if you're younger in the room, we in culture have sold you a lie that you have a waiting period to start serving Christ. Or you have this time in your life just to kind of float through and figure things out and make your mistakes and learn from your mistakes. And you're going to. And I make mistakes at 46, and I learn from those mistakes. So if you think you're going to hit a certain age and the mistakes stop, <laughs> sorry, that's not going to happen. Okay? But we have somehow made you think or provided you this idea that, you know, wait until you're 18, and then you can serve the Lord every day. Until then, go on a mission trip, go to Sunday school, go to youth group, but kind of figure things out. There's no biblical precedent to that. I think most of these disciples were probably teenagers, which helps explain why, like in, another, in Matthew chapter 20, you have James and John's mommy making a request on their behalf to Jesus. I say mommy instead of mother. It's just strange, right? Two grown men would be like, Mom, stop. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but James and John's mom goes to Jesus and says, Hey, can they have a special place on either side of you? And I don't know if they're like, yeah, thanks, Mom. And they went to Mom and asked for that. Or if they're like, oh, no, Mom's talking on our behalf again. I don't know. Okay? Does it help explain even at 20 or 21 why Peter might run his mouth a little bit more? And if you're like 20 or 21, you're like, what are you saying about me? I'm not saying that about you. I'm saying that about Peter. I'm saying that about me. I thought I knew a lot more than I actually knew when I was 20 and 21. Um, I thought I knew a lot more at the time. Then I realized now I didn't know as much as I thought I did. The other thing it does is this. When you look at Scripture, and, the, and sometimes the criticism against the Gospels, for example, is if they're written as late as they were written, how could the disciples have written them if they were older when they were walking around with Jesus? For example, the book of John, which is written probably likely after A.D. 70. Some people put the date clear into the 90s A.D. or Revelation. Well, if John is 16 in A.D. 33, he's not ridiculously old when he would be writing the Gospel of John. Same thing with Matthew. Like, well, Matthew's a tax collector. Tax collectors had this whole lineage of who's actually collecting the taxes, and it wouldn't be unheard of for the tax collector to also have another person under them collecting the taxes for them. Again, this could be gray area. 
But we do know, I'm confident in telling you in Scripture, that God doesn't wait for you to be 21 or 25 or 30 to call you into serving him. I'll give you the example, um, and I'll kind of wrap up with this. But if you take a look at Jeremiah, some scholars say Jeremiah was somewhere between 13 to 17 years old. Um, Now, other scholars think he was 20. We do know that he was young based on his protest to God in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. If you want to move to to that um, passage with me, please. Jeremiah chapter 1. Starting in verse 4. Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. And the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So as we wrap this passage together, each one of us, young or old, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, has been redeemed. That redemption is completely and totally because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again. There's nothing you can do to earn that. There's nothing you can do that will be the equivalent of showing enough gratitude for that. But what we do get to do with the Holy Spirit prompting us, since we all now have the Holy Spirit as those who are saved, is we get to reflect Jesus to the world. We get to be his ambassadors. We get to show the world how to live with joy regardless of circumstances. We have to show the world how to pray for those who persecute us and to love our enemies. We get to show the world that we're confident in life and in death. And we're going to have bad days. We're going to have struggles. Every one of us does. And we can grieve. Jesus grieved. But we have the opportunity, regardless of our age. I'm not even going to say opportunity. I'm going to say we have a responsibility regardless of our age, to reflect Christ to the world. Which means at times, we'll have to decide to eat some food in Amsterdam that is, seems to me, in my American palate, not very tasteful. It may mean, at times, you have to decide, or I have to decide, that my differences of opinion on some social matter out there is not worth fighting with my non-believing friend because I want to, first and foremost, make a kingdom impact, and we can deal with some of those other things later. Or it may mean holding fast to the message of the gospel and being uncompromising when it is threatened. But what I do know for sure is that we have been called to give unto Caesar what Caesar's, but the more important message is Give our everything for our Savior because it's his image has been stamped on us and we are that offering back to him as living sacrifices. Please pray with me. Dear Jesus, I thank you 
a sovereign Lord and, and my Redeemer. And the amazing thing is sometimes we do nice things for people here in this world and we hope that they say thank you and so maybe we get a little perturbed if they don't do things back in kind for us. But in fact, you died on the cross to set us free from sin and guilt and shame. Lord, let us live our lives in joy-filled gratitude for you, not motivated by guilt or obligation. Let us take the responsibility seriously, Lord, but you have given us the greatest riches that we could ask for, not in cars or money or houses or jobs, but in everlasting life with you. And that we can have peace that surpasses understanding and joy unspeakable. We thank you, Lord. Lord, let us give our everythings for you. Let us have the wisdom and discernment when to know that it's you prompting us to act and speak and when it's our own pride, our own desires. And Lord, regardless of how old each one of us is in this room, let us show you gratitude and take your call to be ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen.